The other memory I have early on was of the King's Road house where I would play, was turned loose in the garden in the nude. And um, I enjoyed the feeling of enclosure because there were kind of slopes. It was sort of a sunken garden with a little raised edge at the edge, and so you felt enclosed and protected. I always remember that feeling. It's like my first exposure to the impact of landscape on your well-being. Early memories had to do with walking, taking walks with him, and him talking about whatever his subject was, and I would be, you know, like a sounding board. Thinking back on it, what that was, was it was his way of generating his thinking, his ideas. And it really didn't matter who it was that was on the receiving end, whether he was two years old, 20 years old, he was just spinning his, his thoughts. Because he didn't get to my level, really. he never got down on my level, never got down on the ground with me and sort of growled on the floor. And I thought about that. He didn't have that talent, that was not his, his strong suit. He didn't to know really how to relate to people on an age-appropriate basis. It was absolutely not intentional. It was not something he was doing out of bad will or anything, not at all. First of all, the office was sort of like there, you know, and I'm coming home and I'm a kid and I get into everything, so I'm wandering in there and, and having my dad say, now don't disturb these people, these are supposed to be, they're supposed to be working, they're supposed to be, you know. Then later he got the idea that maybe I could uh, learn how to draft, it wouldn't be a bad idea. So he introduced me formally and said, I want to have Dion learn fundamental drafting skills, so he assigned me to somebody to help watch me. He gave me a board, a drafting board, and I would go in there and sit there with all the grown-ups. So I met, uh, got acquainted with the draftsmen who were in the office at the time, and, and um, sort of participated to some extent in the banter that went back and forth instead. And I thought about that, and I, nothing jumps out at me. I'm not attracted. I wouldn't have wanted to be an attorney or a law doctor or... Um, there's just nothing that occurs to me that I would rather have done. Architecture happens to be an extremely broad area. There's a lot of elements. You know, there's business, there's design creativity, there's structural engineering. There's so many aspects of it, that all of which are of interest and can be, you can drive, be driven in that direction or this direction and still be still within the field. Because there are people that said, well, he'd show up on the site with his cape and cane, he would tap on the thing and say, rip that out. And that's really a total misrepresentation of his style at all. First of all, his tendency was most often when he found something that was wrong, is to try to figure out a way around it somehow. I hardly, something in him didn't like to see things torn out. So that image that came up through people like Wolf von Eckhart and a few historians who wrote pieces, 
it was a totally misplaced thing and it, it, it actually hurt hurt him and hurt our practice because people thought that he was a difficult person to deal with and he was not a difficult person at all. He was a, a, um, a soft-handled boss and he, he, uh, he had a lot of professional courtesy toward his draftsmen. You don't remember him ever flying off the handle with a draftsman per se and I don't remember him ever firing anybody. That was an interesting contrast to what the uh, public, perc public perception is that, that what he was like. I, ne I never got up early enough to sit there with him and watch him do it, but you know, I'd get up at, uh, be there at 8 o'clock and he'd been up since 4. And by then he'd have the, plan, the floor plan drawn, uh, a couple of sketches from two sides, a lot of notes in the margin, you know, about what his motivations were, and, and everything was dimensioned and sized and it would fit the site perfectly and the, the contours were considered and all the factors, all the variables that we were aware of, he had factored in. Uh, he was a great, just a natural salesman and uh, had a great intuitive feel for how to present the argument so that it would be acceptable to the other person. We had a discussion, I remember, and he said to me, you know, you've got to get off all this detail. You've got to have the broader view, you know. You're too focused in on the details of things. And it's time for you to take a, a wider look at things and, and uh, not get so enmeshed in the detail. And I thought about that, and I happened to run into a book, a notebook that he kept during the time he was building the Lemley Building, sort of a supervision notebook. And the kinds of notes that he made about what was going on in the field and the kinds of corrections that he had in mind and stuff were so exactly the same thing. It was at the same stage of his career early on where he was totally focused on the detail. That I brought this book out and I showed him and I said, Dad, do you remember doing this sort of thing when you were my age? <laughs> and he was totally blown away. He said, my God, I didn't remember that that was what I did, and that was, he was as, just as detail-oriented as he could possibly be in those early, early years. You know, like some people start with a form, like Frank Lloyd Wright and on Fifth Avenue, would start with a snail-shaped form and say, let's see if we can fit a museum into this. He'd start with a formal, formal shape of some sort, and then that became the container in which this project had to fit. And that's not at all the way it was in our case. It was more, much more designing from the inside out, if you will. It's not mean to say that RJN wasn't very conscious of, of a lot of factors involving the appearance of the building and whatever, but I think those were all having to do continuing to have to do with the way people perceived and used the buildings 
I mean, you know, walking past the building and having it be attractive is part of enjoying life too. Said he didn't see a separation between utility and beauty. That was a pretty basic uh, concept. In other words, he would always give it, nature as an example. You know, look at nature. Look at a nautilus shell. Where does utility and beauty break off? You know, they're seamless. It's just one. That's the way he wanted to think of his design. It was the same thing. Innovation was a very important part of our work. And the magazine asked me to write an article about innovations of the Neutra practice. That was an interesting subject, and I enjoyed going through and giving a few examples, some of which I did and some of which Arjan did, but it was a, a theme that was constant throughout the practice. People always try to analyze the work from a formalistic point of view and say, it reminds me of the steel, it reminds me of uh, Japanese influences. Um, People have all kinds of need to trace back what it looks like to some kind of earlier uh, teacher, exposure, whatever. And I've always thought that that was secondary. I think that the most important contribution that my dad made was the fact that he intuitively tried to relate back to the earliest beginnings of man and nature. That was really his reference. And the fact that he got the, the, the health house so early on in his practice to design that building was such a, just a stroke of wonderful luck, you know, because it really was a metaphor for everything that followed. The whole notion of designing for health is really what the practice is all about. And so the forms that, that were used to express that are less important than the underlying philosophy that was trying to be expressed by, by doing these things. So a lot of the refinements and things that happened along the way were all in the service of that same thing. And I felt that later, you know, in my career when even after he was gone I was able to do things like the Huntington Beach Library where I was able to bring more elements into that building than we ever had in any project while he was alive. But it was, to me, it was an extension of the same thinking, and the same notion, the same uh, tendency. I hope that gave you a sense of who Dion Neutra was, who was the person that um, designed the library that hopefully you all enjoy. And uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, appreciate it all. Turn this over to my father. say thank you to Justin and to my 11-year-old granddaughter, Nadine. <laughs> <laughs>
carrying a legacy. He is part of a, a train that goes back to Frank Lloyd Wright. And uh, I want to talk about the relation of my father to Frank Lloyd Wright and of, by extension Dion's relation. Um, so, uh, and uh, indeed, there's a, a book that I wrote about this. Um, there's an ebook version and a hard copy uh, version that came out this year. And uh, what I will say is that, first of all, saying who, who was, what was Wright and his followers rebelling against about the delayed pilgrimage to Wright uh, and Schindler that my father made. Uh, how the accomplishments between 1923 and 30 uh, put him uh, on the world stage, and why he wanted to be cheap and thin, as Wright said, and uh, and yet Neutra was adopting and adapting uh, and modifying Wright's uh, eight design tactics that he pushed early in his career. And then later, Neutra began thinking much more about the consequences of these design tactics on biology. And then we'll finish with a little more about the Neutra Institute that my father began in 1962 and Dion continued and has endowed. So uh, what were they rebelling against? Um, well, let's see. I, uh, it was this. Uh, Wright said, the buildings standing then were all tall and all tight. Chimneys were lean and taller still, sooty fingers threatening the sky. Dormers were elaborate devices, cunning little buildings, complete in themselves, stuck to the main roof. Now, Wright was not the only person who was rebelling against this. In Vienna, Otto Wagner uh, uh, was doing designs like this and influenced my father as a young man. And Adolf Loos uh, talked about uh, ornament as a crime and that architecture uh, was not art but had to serve a, the purposes of the client. And also my father was influenced by reading the physiological psychology of Wilhelm Wundt, which made him think about the physiological and neurological consequences of design. And later in his career, he, or it was early in his career, before he came to the United States, he worked with the landscape architect Gustav Amann. So these were all influences of him. Uh, but it was a delayed pilgrimage to write because in 1910, as he was starting to study architecture, he came across the Vasmuth portfolio that I'm ha holding here, the copy at the Getty Institute. And in it, he saw drawings of buildings like this that exploded the box uh, and, and astounded my father, astounded Schindler, astounded uh, Wagner and Loos and Le Corbusier and Mies and Gropius. But before he was able to go to the United States like his older friend Schindler did in 1913, he was drafted into World War I and spent four years hauling uh, this horse-drawn piece of artillery through the Balkans. Uh, he did marry uh, my mother in uh, 1923 
and soon after went to uh, New York and uh, landed a job with Wright. And there is my mother playing the cello and my father with his uh, head, a chin in his hand um, and Mr. Wright sitting there. But uh, there was no business to be had after about half a year and he moved on uh, to move in with his older uh, colleague Schindler in uh, the King's Road house. Uh, and Schindler was doing something radically in the early 20s that nobody else was doing, making a functional connection between the indoors and outdoors. And this was very influential to my father. But between 23 and 1930, he was busy. He and Schindler uh, submitted this project uh, for the League of Nations. Um, uh, he and Schindler designed this uh, reinforced concrete a balcony containing uh, apartment house. He did studies of city design and proposed a uh, prefabricated ring plan school made of metal parts with uh, doors opening to outside gardens, bilateral uh, illumination and natural ventilation. And then in 1929, uh, he completed uh, a design for a house and school uh, uh, in uh, Griffith Park. And uh, this was a school, and the last remaining student, Hap Lovell, told me about it and shared uh, home videos of what was going on in this learn-by-doing school. And then my father wrote this book, How America Builds, because America was building in a way that was very different than what was going on in Europe. Um, so, all of this was going on, and uh, Wright, when he saw some of these projects in 1932, said Neutra's work was cheap and thin. Uh, but he was right because my father was interested in being inexpensive and light. And he had grown up in uh, Vienna at the time when the Socialist Party was strong and talking about housing for the poor, and he wanted to have, focus on this clientele uh, who never had the chance of architect-designed dwellings. And uh, the idea was that he would have, uh, um, he would use what Henry Ford had developed, mass uh, production of, um, uh, and, and apply this to housing, schools, clinics, um, hospitals, libraries, and community centers, things that he called architecture of social concern. Now Wright had been doing some prefabrication before World War I, but didn't pursue it after that. Um, so this was the prefabricated ring plan school. Uh, Level Health House was all built by members that were factory produced and, and brought to the site and quickly assembled. His own house was built on reinforced uh, prefabricated uh, joists, uh, did the same thing in Vienna around the same time. He, he did uh, 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 designs uh, out of uh, steel paneling in the early 30s, and in 1936, he finally was able to design and build a school, um, uh, a plywood and steel prefabricated house. And in 1941, he uh, 
he designed a whole community for um, airplane uh, workers uh, pre with prefabricated houses that were constructed in just an hour. Uh, in Puerto Rico, he uh, designed reinforced concrete schools and communities. A gas station garage folding door that opened out onto this uh, balcony. Um, so balconies were a big thing for my father's design. This is the Kelton Apartments uh, and openness to the outdoors. So the horizontal hug of nature, here's right and right. Uh, my father wrote a book, Nature Near Design, that was influenced by the Japanese who had borrowed landscape of near and intermediate distances. And my father's first experience in 1922 was designing a forest cemetery where he had to specify all the plants and which ones needed to be uh, uh, replaced in 50 years. Um, and all of his early projects, uh, the, the landscape architecture was part of the design. And, and his photographs, uh, unlike many other uh, photographs of the time, there was always uh, exposure so that you saw what was outside. And these are various uh, designs relating to nature. The Euler House, uh, the film has been available on Amazon in the last few weeks, and people keep emailing me saying that they've seen it. I, I recommend it. And of course, the Kaufman Desert House, the uh, Tremaine House, influenced by those designs in Puerto Rico. Uh, the Chewy House, this is a house in, in Virginia, Ohio. Uh, in Wright's architecture, there's a lot more going on inside uh, uh, that in some ways more competition with what's going on outside. Le Corbusier had windows, but not so much interest in what was going on outside uh, as compared, let's say, to the Lovell Health House around the same time. Then there's the exploding the box, and of course the Gale House is the example which influenced the Dutch architects like Rietveld and the De Stijl uh, style of architecture. Uh, and this kind of exploding the box in a wide extension of eaves, creating the kind of uh, prospect and refuge that our prehistoric uh, ancestors had for hundreds of thousands of years in, in Africa was something that was not characteristic of European architecture, which depended on brick and stone. Uh, the Japanese uh, uh, did it though. And so you see this exploding the box in uh, Neutra's architecture. This is the VDL again, uh, which burned down in uh, 1963, and my dad and Dion then redesigned on the same uh, footprint. And um, so there were two wings uh, separated by patios. So balconies and exploding the box, um, early 30s, uh, all the way to the last uh, design of my father in France uh, in 1969. So windows is screens, not holes. Again, the Lovell Health House. 
and uh, the VDL studio and residences. That, that metal paneled house that I've mentioned before with sliding glass doors and this wonderful house in Switzerland and, and that last French house again. The Corbusier used strip windows, but they're more sort of punched into the wall. Um, uh, so then the ornamental potential of materials in the straight line of the machine and the integration of elements. So here's the Roby House, Roby House, the Friedman House. Uh, this is Adolf Loos. And here's my father in the early 30s with uh, uh, now industrial materials, masonite, linoleum, um, uh, stainless steel. Uh, and then as we start with the uh, Kaufman House, materials start to uh, expand and we're having stone and different kinds of wood. The mechanical systems integrated into the design, so Wright uh, paid a lot of attention to the lights. Uh, this is a, a school he did in Japan. Um, Otto Wagner also integrated these are aluminum uh, heat vents in his uh, post office. Um, my father uh, would have an awning, a strip light, and then ventilation for the roof plenum. <coughs> Here's how this awning would come down and how the lights were hidden behind frosted glass so that you have this effect at night. <coughs> Um, after his Puerto Rico experience, my father was sent uh, to South America on a lecture tour for the State um, Department, and he discovered that um, Kirchhoff and Hardoy of the Hardoy chair had come up with this idea of vertical wooden louvers that could move with the sun. So when he came back to California and was designing the Kaufman House, he adapted this. Um, and uh, made it so that they could lock. So not only would they protect against the sun, but against the wind that would come down from the mountains at dusk. And, and these uh, louvers uh, showed up in the Los Angeles Hall of Records uh, and in the second version of the VDL house. Another uh, uh, device that had both aesthetic and practical effects were the water roofs where uh, it would keep the roof cool and um, cast a rippling, changing um, uh, light on the ceiling. Wright used this uh, linear built-in furniture and my father did as well. He loved small spaces. This is my favorite room in the VDL studio and residence. Um, everything is thought out just like in an Airstream trailer, so it's possible to have this tiny little space and, and feel uh, spacious in there. You see how he's uh, got floor-to-ceiling glass looking out into a little pond and then to the borrowed landscape beyond. The Corbusier and Mies uh, don't use built-in furniture to that uh, degree. So in the late 30s, uh, my father returned to his interest in physiological psychology and began, as he was doing designs, he would 
think about the consequence of the design and put down his pencil and on the and, and, and pick up a pen and a writing pad and jot down some ideas and a series of essays came out of that that were finally produced in the book uh, Survival Through Design in 1954. And we're going to be reissuing an, um, a new edition with an index and a bibliography and a scholarly introduction by Barbara Lamprecht. So his idea was that there was a, a causal chain. There are design tactics that produce a desired parade of exposures. And these exposures have a physiological result, that, and those results have an impact on task performance and health. And of course, sometimes, but not always, have an impact on conscious experience. Lead paint has all kinds of consequences that we're not conscious of. Uh, so an example would be design tactics to provide daylight and views in schools, which he started thinking about with that ring plan school back in 1927, and which he finally uh, got to build in 1936. So there's all kinds of research to show that natural light affects our circadian rhythm, and our circadian rhythm affects uh, all kinds of diseases. Uh, it also affects uh, performance, and there, there's studies to show that kids that have, a, a, uh, have the ability to get natural light and views do better on uh, uh, tests. So uh, the parade of exposures is bright light, full spectrum light, Intensity and spectrum changes minute to minute. Large windows and skylights mimic the broad light source of the bright sky. And the ability to shift from homework to daydreaming is probably good, while we used to think it was a bad idea. Uh, there are physiological results, circadian hormones, unknown uh, correlates with pleasure, focused work, EEG, and daydreaming EEGs are different and uh, teachers and students prefer natural light and improve test scores. And when is a design tactic a necessity and when an amenity? Well, if it has impacts on health and performance, it's not an amenity. So the Neutra Institute for Survival Through Design started in 1962 by my dad with the hope that somehow his renown would be helpful to people that were doing evidence-based and responsible design then. And when he died, uh, Dion took over the institute and his focus was more on preservation of the Neutra legacy. Uh, here he is at the library. With the, with the then librarian, someone may recognize her. Uh, so the vision is is um, um, well, was said is surviving in the climate crisis through well-researched designs, serve humanity and the planet, and the mission is preserving and using this legacy to promote current creative research and design that benefits people and the planet. So uh, between uh, 2020 and now. Uh, we have landmarked our buildings, and we have done historic uh, structures report to see what kind of repairs are needed. Um, we've uh, helped create a finding aid for the Dion Neutra papers. Um, we're doing this new illustrated edition of Survival Through Design, 
and uh, have supported the publication of the book of Neutra in Latin America, which has just become available on Amazon by uh, Professor Catherine Edinger. And then using the Neutra to promote research and responsible design, um, we're, uh, we, we have three buildings that we uh, inherited from Dion that are all apartments in the Silver Lake District. And they're uh, uh, occupied, but we're doing a virtual reality walkthroughs of some of those uh, buildings. And we're doing short videos uh, that talk about uh, some design challenges that Richard and Dion were struggling with, that we're still struggling with today. And also about some of the uh, physiological effects of the design tactics. So if you go by, uh, those buildings, there'll be a QR code. You can uh, take out your smartphone and see a three-minute video or a walkthrough. Um, and then we're doing a post-occupancy evaluation of the 1958, uh, 1958 uh, lab school on the UCLA campus. How does it work? How did it perform uh, during COVID? Um, um, and uh, how can we extend its life as California gets hotter and hotter. So these are the three buildings that we've inherited. That the QR codes will be of Dion's treetops, the 1949 reunion house that my father lived in for a while, and then Dion spent much of the latter part of his life there. Uh, he designed a little added uh, apartment there that had been anticipated in the original design. And this is the living room. We're hoping to use this space as a venue for visiting scholars. And the first one was Professor Paul Chamberlain from Sheffield, England, who's an expert on aged housing, aging housing, and, and conferred with friends in USC while he was there. And then the, the, the third place is the old Neutra Alexander office, uh, which uh, Dion had used as an art venue, and we hope to find a tenant that will do that. Uh, there are apartments uh, in the back, and we have restored the upper one. Um, if you go to our website, you can do a virtual tour of that apartment, and you can also uh, see a short video about uh, natural light and its effects. So if you're interested, it's www.noitra.org. And to summarize again, we talked about what people were rebelling against, about this delayed pilgrimage to Wright and Schindler, his accomplishments uh, in, you know, back in the 20s, and why he wanted to be cheap and thin, and how he modified those eight points, and how he got interested in the effect of design tactics. And there are copies of this book that you can look at. So I thank you very much. Hello, I am Jane Cameron, and welcome to this edition of Flashback, focusing on the Huntington Beach public library system in 1995. Our Huntington Beach Public Library has been providing library and cultural services to our community since 1909. 
On this episode of Flashback, I met with Library Director Ron Hayden, who has since retired in 2008 after 23 years as director. In addition to the recently completed library expansion of 1994, we discussed the many resources available through the library system. A video within this video shows mascot Rita riding on the book conveyor system, explaining how the book return and retrieval process works within Central Library. We also visited Central Library's art gallery, the 13,000 volume collection of genealogy materials, and the reference sections for career, law, and medicine. A visit to the Main Street Library showed how the branch libraries are an important resource to local neighborhoods. Since this 1995 video, significant changes have occurred in the library system which have benefited the community. The late 1900s and early 2000s saw the emergence of a virtual web-based database with help from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the library embraced the information age by providing computer labs with free internet access. In 2005, a significant computer upgrade was completed, which resulted in free wireless internet, online renewals and reserves, and web-based used book sales. For over 114 years, our Huntington Beach library system has empowered and enriched our community by providing innovative and traditional library services that inspire and encourage transformation and growth. We hope you enjoy this edition of Flashback. Welcome again to Inside City Hall. My name is Jane Cameron, and we're again at the Huntington Beach Central Library with the Director of Library Services, Ron Hayden. Ron, I know there's been a lot of uh, promotion and talk about the new wing of the library, but today we're going to talk about actual the main focus of the library, which is all the books that we have behind us. Just how many books does the Huntington Beach Central Library have in its possession? Well, to answer you uh, directly, it's about 350,000 volumes in the entire system. But um, in general, I'd also like to comment what, uh, what you just said, is that many times people um, talk about the expansion. Okay. And we don't want to lose sight of the, the, the importance and the basic core uh, justification for a library is its collection. Absolutely. So we have, uh, as I said, 350,000 volumes of books. Uh, over 650 periodicals, magazines, uh, 20 newspapers, uh, databases. I mean, the resources are 
uh, mind-boggling. And, and so what I really wanted to do is spend some time with you in the existing library and talk about some of the resources that people may not realize that are available to them. You know, in the past several years, Huntington Beach has been hit in the budget with cuts and holding back money and such. I'm sure the library must have been affected to some extent, but exactly how? Well, yes, we have. Uh, we've reduced our uh, staff by about 15%, and we've cut, unfortunately, our book budget by about 50%. So. Uh, we have, uh, unfortunately, been unable to purchase as many books as the community needs and as we would like to purchase. So what we are doing now that the expansion is completed uh, is focusing very, very um, diligently on building the library collection with books. So our main focus now is to rebuild the collection and now that we have the space, make it a collection um, as it should be for this community. Well, the budget, I'm sure, for Huntington Beach is pretty much set the way it is. So how does the library draw on funds or on books in order to increase the amount that you have or replace those that have been damaged? Well, first of all, the majority of the funds uh, come from the general fund, the budget. But uh, in addition to that, we have library support groups who have programs which generate revenue and go directly back to purchasing books. In fact, uh, right behind us here uh, is a program sponsored by the Friends of the Library, and it's a, a book sale. And they have ongoing book sales. They have uh, semi-annual book sales. And uh, these books are donated by the community. Uh, and they're evaluated by our librarians, and if we can't use them, the friends sell them, and all the money that's generated from the sales go back to the library to buy more books. That's great. I'm sure with different types of donations, you must get some books that are pretty nice. Do you put those out here, or do you have a special place for those? We put those in a uh, special collection, it's and uh, it's called the Silent Auction Collection, and what's really unique about this is there's uh, very rare books, or specialized books, that are a little bit different from the popular ones out here, and we give people an opportunity to bid on them. For instance, uh, right now we have on Civil War, uh, there's a 10-volume collection of rare photographs uh, from the Civil War. Uh, and so those people who are very interested in the Civil War can outbid each other to get um, the, the books, take them home and use them in their library. That's great. Now with all the books that you've discussed, those that are here for the sale and for the auction, plus the unbelievable amount that you have in the library, how many man hours must it take in order to put everything back where it belongs? Lots. <laughs> and because that is our uh, central uh, function, if you will, as a library, that circulating material, what we have developed um, through a lot of um, hard work and uh, experimenting is a book conveyor system. And I think as an example of our staff's uh, uh, creativity, what I'd like to do is show you a video by Bill Miller, one of our staff members here, who has completely um, videotaped the process and I think made it entertaining in terms of understanding this complex system that we developed. Now, is this uh, a video that children can, can understand as well? In fact, we do show this at our uh, uh, Storytime Theater uh, in various school tours. So yes, he has a little twist with our mascot, Rita, uh, riding on the belt and so on. So that it is very technical, but uh, he wanted to develop it in a um, manner in which just about everyone could understand and hopefully appreciate. 
and I'm sure we're going to be seeing things that no one else gets to see on a normal basis. That's right. Great. Let's take a look at it now. Once upon a time, at a very big library not far away, the people who lived there decided to make it bigger and better. And where they once pushed, pulled, and tugged their books wherever they went, they decided that now they were tired. Let the books come to us, they shouted. And as quick as you can say, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, the books did come. They didn't walk. They didn't fly. They rode. They rode? Yes, they rode on a conveyor belt. Rita heard of this belt, and one sunny day, that rascally sea serpent said, Show me this belt. No one has seen a conveyor in a library. No one in the whole wide world. Let me see this belt. We will come too, said Rita's friends. So off to the library they went. Who knows about this conveyor belt, asked Rita at the friendly reception desk. George, said the smiling lady. George, the conveyor brain. He lives in a secret room in the bottom of the library. And I will talk to George, said Rita. And off he went. Rita found the secret room. It was small and noisy. I don't see a brain or even a George in here, said Rita. Maybe he's in here, said Rusty as he opened the door. I am here, said George. Up here, look up. Those are my control circuits. We came to find out about your conveyor, said Rita timidly. Certainly, said George. I will tell you everything, Rita. Look here. The conveyor belt is really two separate belts, one for adult books and one for children's. People put books in the outside book drop or in the inside book drop, no matter. The books ride the belt. The adult books go to adult pre-shoving. Children's books... Of course, to children's pre-shelving. It's a very long, long trip. The books like the ride, and the humans aren't as tired anymore. Come, let me show you. Let me return my books, said Rita. First, at the drive-up book drop outside. One book at a time, Rita. And then, at the inside book drop. Hey, that's easy and fun. But where did they go? First, they must slide down shiny metal chutes, said George. They slide down, down, until they find the belt. Then they ride. Whee, said Rita. Be careful, you rascally sea serpent, scolded George. Conveyors can be very dangerous. 
I'm sorry, said Rita sadly. I'll be careful. Rita rode, 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 rode. What's that? asked Rita. My electric eye. If too many books get together, my eye turns the conveyor off so they don't get hurt. Oh, look at the silver roller, said wide-eyed Rita. That's the accumulator, said George. Ashy, ashy, ashy. Accumulator. Those wire gates above the rollers separate the books, allowing just one book at a time. It's safer that way. Why do they go clang, clang, clang? The gates have weights on them to keep bad books from turning the gates over and stopping the belt. <laughs> Sounds like a train, said Rusty. Careful, Rusty. Those micro switches tell the gates when to open. Don't break them. Rita rode some more. What's that axe doing there? asked Rusty. That's not just an axe, Rusty. It's a laser beam. From those lasers up there. Every book in the library has a barcode and a sort code. My lasers look at these codes and tell me which bin to put the book in. Here, I'll show you. Now the book travels along the belt. When my laser reads the barcode, it sends it to me, so I can tell the library computer to check the book in. When the laser sends the sort code, I can tell the correct diverter to divert the book into the proper bin. Diverter? It's a pusher of sorts, said George, like this. Don't get too close, Rita. Will you be a good sea serpent, please? Yes. But what makes the diverter work? Air. Lots of air. Pneumatics, we call it. My compressor blows air all day and most of the night. What happens to these books at the end? Asked Rusty. The lasers didn't read both the sort code and the barcode. Humans check them in manually. Rough sort them in pre-shelving. Then take them to the stacks to be shelved. But what if there's trouble? Asked Rita. You can push that red button by Rusty. Oh, Rita, go ahead. Pull that emergency cord. The belt stops instantly. To start it up again, when the trouble's over, just turn a key. Well, I've got to be going now. I've shown you everything. Thanks, George. Yeah, thanks. As Rita checked out some books, the rascally sea serpent was very, very happy. There was a conveyor in a library. 
and it was Rita's library. And Rita had seen it all. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. system is such a technical aspect of the library. It's unbelievable that you have something like that in, in a building of books. Yes, and not only uh, do we have uh, the conveyor system, which you're right, is technical, we have on the other end of the spectrum uh, an area that is completely artistic. And this uh, particular uh, gallery is sponsored by the Arts Associates. Mm -hmm. and. It is a space in which local artists can exhibit their works, watercolors, oils, uh, sculptures, ceramics. And because we have about 5,000 people a day visiting us, it's a very good opportunity to show their work and also give the people an opportunity to experience art. So we not only have this space, we're also expanding uh, the galleries to include the Huntington Beach Art League. So. As people come to the library to get their books, to see a play, to uh, educate their children, uh, they can also come within the library and see exhibits of art. Let's bring it back to books, though. This is unbelievable and very beautiful. But libraries, to me, um, bring in that sense of history. Do you have any department or division within the library that really hits home the idea of having that historical presence that is available in books? I'm glad you asked, Jane. We went from technical to artistic, and now I think we need to go to the historic. We have a 13,000 volume collection of genealogy materials. And what I'd like to do is show you that collection and tell you a little bit about how we operate the genealogical collection. Okay, if you lead the way, I'll follow. Let's go. This is a very large collection. Is it unusual for a city library to have a collection as large as this? Well, it's almost uh, unheard of in that there are over 12,000 volumes of genealogical material here. So for uh, a city library to have that much information in one area is amazing. How does it compare to maybe what other libraries in the area have to offer? They normally have uh, one or two shelves, not a whole collection with uh, uh, varieties of um, census records, birth, death, marriage, um, uh, ship records as people coming over. Uh, uh, there's also church records. In fact, I, I pulled a couple. Yeah, I saw um, you grab those off the shelf. Yeah, and as a, there are uh, some areas across the country uh, that did not have uh, accurate means of recording the record, so others have actually gone into their uh, cemeteries and performed rubbings. In fact, I have one here, The Shadows of the Past. It's tombstone inscriptions in Tulsa County, Oklahoma, volume two, nonetheless. Uh, so they're very specific, and I know this one would interest you. Um, 
Pocahontas and her descendants. Absolutely. Uh, I don't. I haven't looked and see if your names in here yet, but uh, <laughs> for those, in fact, are, who are interested in Pocahontas, there's actually a quarterly newsletter. So. The type of information here is, is really mind-boggling, and we would have to do a whole show just entirely on this collection, but it is maintained by the Orange County Genealogical Society. Uh, we help them purchase the books. Uh, they maintain our collection for us, and uh, they have monthly meetings here. Uh, and they do offer assistance for those people who are interested in the uh, process of discovering more about their family histories. Now, if you have a reference selection such as this that is just beyond the standards of what is uh, normal for other libraries, then you must have other areas of reference in the library that uh, I'm sure are just as comparable. Right. What I'd like to do now is show you our reference collection. Actually, have Mr. Thad Phillips, our library services manager, do that and show you the wide range of business, legal, and database services that we offer in the reference section. So, I'd like to take you there now. Great. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is only a test. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is only a test. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is only a test. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is only a test. This is a test of the City of Huntington Beach closed captioning. This is only a test. Test, 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 one, two. Test, 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 one, two.